Well, some weeks ago, I began this consecutive expository series entitled Seeing Jesus Together in the Gospel of Luke. Seeing Jesus Together in the Gospel of Luke. We're now in chapter 4, having gone through the birth narratives and through the baptism of Jesus. And now, Jesus is about to commence his public ministry. Our scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. You're welcome to read along on the screen with me, or you can use your Bible or your device, but by whatever means you are paying attention, do pay attention carefully because this is not the word of men, but the word of the true and living God. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue of the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant. And sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in, our, in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath 
in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town, the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our great God remains always. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, give us light and illumination and understanding to hear and receive the engrafted word with meekness. And Father, may it yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness in us because we believe in your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you were here last week, we saw that Luke's account of the temptation was nothing short of a battle royale. A temptation in the wilderness of Judea, but not just of lacking bread or something to eat. That indeed was there, an allusion to other wild beasts. But there was also another very malevolent presence there tempting Jesus, trying to trip him up, telling him lies and half-truths, trying to get him to fail in his mission. Well, as we will soon see, Jesus will be thrust into another battlefield but in an unlikely place. His own hometown in Nazareth, where he grew up in the region of Galilee. Now Luke's account now takes us from the Judean wilderness down in the region of Jericho, where John had been baptizing and where Jesus had been baptized, he takes us from that region due north and then to the northwest to the Galilee. Luke, in that begins, or excuse me, Jesus begins his public ministry in that region called the Galilee. Now, the region of Galilee gets its name from the Hebrew word Galil, Galil, which means ring or circle, ring or circle. And long ago, many, many hundreds of years ago, there had been Gentile nations that were 
coming in all around the region of the Galilee. And so literally, it was the circled Galilee with all of these Gentile pagans all around them in the northwest, in the north, in the, in, in the east, and southeast of them. And yet, it had become a byword. <laughs> Galilee of the Gentiles. That's the place that you held your nose. All those filthy, stinking Gentiles all circled all around them. Now, despite that, Jesus' ministry had a very promising start in and around the regions of Galilee, particularly around the lake or the Sea of Galilee, though it is a freshwater lake. He had a particularly effective start in Capernaum, which is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Luke, very interestingly here, skips several events that took place in the other gospel writers. Matthew, Mark, John. They recorded some other things that happened after Jesus left and came into the Galilee he didn't go first to his hometown. He first went to the region and around Galilee, the Sea of Galilee in the place of Capernaum. Probably picked up at least five of his disciples in that time as well. Jesus likely taught and healed for some time before ever deciding to go to Nazareth. Now, you notice the way Luke says it. It says he in the Galilee, and then he heads for Nazareth, as if that's nothing else takes place in there. But there are a number of things that in the other Gospels are given to us. But Luke wants to make a beeline for Nazareth for a very good reason, as we will see. Now, here's today's outline, the rejection. First of all, the Jesus' return, then Jesus' reception, and then, of course, Jesus' rejection. That's our outline for this morning. Now, let's look at Jesus' return in 14, uh, verses 14 and 15. In 14 and 15 of our text reading this morning, we are, that is what we could call a transition text. I've already been telling you just a moment ago that that's what's happening. There's a transition going, coming from out of the south in the region where Jesus was baptized and where the temptation took place. Now he's in the region of Galilee and particularly now. I found this on the web. Don't know why you did that. Um, <laughs> Jesus now does not return from his bout with Satan into the Galilee. He does not return 
all bruised and bloodied and beaten up. He's not a limping savior trying to crawl back into his home area. Instead, he comes into the Galilee, Luke tells us, in the power of the Spirit. That's, that language is very reminiscent of a victor, of one who has overcome and has won. Instead, he comes into Galilee in the power of the Spirit like the mighty winds that swept into the sea of Galilee. You've heard me speak before about those winds and that came off of the Mediterranean and down through mountain passes and through what is known as the Valley of the Wind and the Doves. And many, many years ago, we got to be there. And that, with those powerful winds that would come would get all in the, the shallowness of the relative shallowness of the sea or Lake of Gal Galilee. It would create incredible stormy winds. And it's almost like Luke is saying Jesus is riding on those kind metaphorically. Not, not literally, but metaphorically. He's riding in after his defeat of the tempter. And now he comes in power of the Spirit to begin his public ministry. Furthermore, Jesus' notoriety and fame was spreading daily because he was what? Luke says, was teaching in their synagogues. Every chance, every opportunity, people, they had heard about him. They had gotten the word about that he had been baptized in the Jordan and what this, what this God had spoken and those had heard. It had gone like wildfire. And now he was being, people were were pursuing him, crowds were gathering in the region of Capernaum and all around the Sea of Galilee. And now he starts to come back to his hometown. Now, I do want to just mention something to you. Uh, you all may know what a church bulletin is, right? <laughs> I don't know if we had enough or all, uh, for, for today. I don't know, we may have came, came close to running out. We may have gotten... Uh, uh, some, I don't know, but uh, you know what a bulletin is, and mine's sitting over there right now. But if, if I were to hold that bulletin up, it basically kind of tells you what's going on and tells you uh, the order kind of how we're going to do worship this morning. And uh, so, but here's the thing that's interesting. In the first century, Jewish people had a bulletin too. <laughs> they had a bulletin for their synagogue worship. Uh, for instance, listen to these elements. This is, a, this is a typical synagogue bulletin. Now, they wouldn't all necessarily be exactly like this, just like ours isn't. From time to time, we change elements or focus on or add something. But listen to this. Here's a typical order of service that would have been used every Sabbath throughout Israel. Something like this. Invocation. That's basically an invite to come and, and worship God. Sometimes we call it a call to worship. Recitation of a confession of faith. In other words, to confess their faith. Sometimes we do that through creeds and things of that nature. Prayer. Readings of the law and prophets. In other words, their whole Bible, Old Testament Bible that they had. Brief message 
or sermon. I know some of you love that, that, that word. Um, brief message or sermon given by a rabbi. And then a closing prayer and dismissal. What's that? It's a benediction. Now, isn't that interesting? It's not exactly the same, but there's a lot of similarity. And this shows that we got a lot of our first century worship approaches and practices, many of that being borrowed from the synagogue. And Jesus had been regularly teaching in synagogues all around that region in the Galilee as he starts to come in to his own town. Now, Jesus is on the way. He probably would have taken that route from Capernaum down a little bit and would have then taken that route and gone through the valley of the wind and doves and popped out on the southwest of that area. The lake would have been here and the southwest area would have been here where you would see Nazareth. Um, now, <laughs> here's the thing that's, that's really, I think, kind of interesting. Jesus is on the way, coming through there, and he's coming to his humble little town of Nazareth. The truth is, <laughs> Nazareth didn't have a lot to brag about. I don't know if, you've, if, you, if you are a, a follower of college football. I, I've been known to once in a blue moon watch a college football game, especially if it has uh, crimson and white colors or, that are prominent. Uh, but there is a, a former coach, Les Miles, that, that was the coach of LSU for a number of years, no longer so, but uh, he used to say about Tiger Stadium, known as Death Valley, and he used to say, this is where other teams' dreams come to die. <laughs> Death Valley is where other teams' aspirations, dreams, and hopes come to die. Well, folks, Nazareth was where Dreams come to die. Nothing good comes out of there. Whatever happened in Nazareth that was of any consequence? It's a nobody, nowhereville place. Backwoods. But Jesus' return contrary to that, at least for the outset, must have felt like an Olympic champion coming home. They were packing in the synagogue for that coming Sabbath. They were packing it out, getting the extra chairs. Well, they really didn't have extra chairs. <laughs> um, now, Jesus' reception is the thing I want you now to look at. That sets the stage. And here's the reception. We've seen his return. He's there now. What happens? That's in verses 16 through 21. Now, I want to show you a few graphics that might be helpful here. Uh, I hope they will be. Uh, kind of get you into 
the flavor of where, where we are. And um, I know for those of you out in live stream land, you can't see this. I'll, I'll, I'll do the best I can. All right. Uh, next slide, please. Okay. Um, let's see here. Well, why is it? Well, that should be. Oh, there we go. I'll get this in a minute, I think. There we go. Okay, remember, down in this region here, this is where there, the baptism probably would have been here. The temptation was in the Judean wilderness, which would have been in this area here. And Jesus has come all the way up, set up early shop here, and now he's coming through the valley of the wind of doves here to Nazareth. Next slide, please. Now, that is modern-day Nazareth that you see on the screen. Uh, considerably larger town than it was then. Now, but it still wasn't that big. Um, next slide, please. Now, this is giving you a, a little bit of a picture of the what a, a first-century synagogue would have looked like. I say, you know, that's why I said no chairs. You would sit, people would sit around and the teaching would be done from here. Next one, please. And there you see a rabbi. And imagine that would have been something, maybe what it would have been looked at with the pillars here. And Jesus, when he stood, would have been standing there teaching. Of course, it probably went a whole lot more crowded uh, than that. But that would have been a picture of a typical uh, synagogue. And then, uh, do I have one more? Yes. And of course, he was given the scroll, remember? That scroll would have been likely uh, uh, papyrus. Could have been leather. Actually, could have been leather. Or it could have been a, a, a kind of crushed um, uh, stuff that basically molded together. And I mean, when you put it together, kind of pasted to create um, a scroll where you could keep. And that was, of course, the scroll of Isaiah, in this case, is what was given to Jesus. All right, thank you very much. Um, now, with that in mind, the people received him at this point with great anticipation as Jesus was given the scroll. Now, as you said, as you saw, heard me say, Jesus stood up to read the scroll. Everybody else was sitting down, or, uh, but Jesus stood up. And he picked out a particular passage from the scroll. It was a scroll of the book of Isaiah. But Jesus dug in and found a particular passage. And it's Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. And its parallel is in what we read, Luke 4. Let me read it again. Now this is what Luke Four records and Isaiah 61 1 to 1 through 2 that's one side of the parallel and the other is Luke 4 18 through 19 but I'll tell you there is a slight variance actually a couple but I'm going to just point out one of those this is this is what Jesus spoke according to Luke it is Isaiah 61 1 through 2 but with something missing. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, those things track pretty, pretty, uh, very, very close, almost word for word. Luke's account and Isaiah uh, 61. Well, one other slight variance, not a lot of impact there. But there's a lot of impact in what both of them uh, leave out. Uh, Isaiah didn't leave this out, but Luke did. The question is why? All, all in all, very parallel. But Luke omits a particular phrase in the Isaiah passage. And that page, that passage is, and the day of the vengeance of our God. But Luke does not include that. Now, the million-dollar question is why? It's in Isaiah. It's part of Scripture. But why was it not put there in Luke's account of Jesus' reading? Why would he omit this portion of the prophecy? Well, the omission serves to keep the spotlight on the Lord's favor rather than on the Lord's judgment. I think that's the bottom line. You see, Jesus ended his reading on the subject of grace, and that was intentional. Grace being offered to undeserving people. The day of vengeance, oh, it will come. It's not that it's not going to come. It's not that it's not true. It will come soon enough and certainly. But now is the emphasis, the focus is upon. Now is the year. Did you notice that? The year. But that isn't talking about a 365-day year. That's the era, the epoch, the time, the season of the Lord's favor. Something new has come. And Jesus is, according to Luke, he is focusing not on all of Isaiah. He's leaving something out or holding it back for a time, but to focus on the time, the era of grace, during which all who embrace the Messiah as their Savior, will find mercy. Listen, listen to Mike McKinley's words here. He says, in essence, the good news of the kingdom is that the outsiders, the poor, the oppressed, the imprisoned, and the crippled have been sent a spirit-anointed messenger of God's grace. Those who seem to have been beyond the reach of the Lord's favor are now recipients of His salvation. Of course, there is no surprise to Luke's readers. We have already been prepared for this reversal of fortune by Mary's reflection on this very theme in her song of praise. Luke 1, 46 and 55, especially verses 50 through 53. So you see it's intentional. 
It's not that it's not true and it's going to come, but that's not the focus now. Now, as the scripture elsewhere says, it's the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Harden not your hearts. After his reading, Jesus sat down. And his anxious eyes were all on him, Jesus said, today. This scripture, this offer is here in your midst. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I bet you could have heard a pin drop. Absolutely stone cold silence. Cutting eyes maybe around the room, but nobody saying anything. They were utterly shocked. Jesus was not making a prediction, but rather a proclamation. Of what? A proclamation that God's along Messiah has come. And he's standing, now sitting here in front of you. You're talking about mind-blowing. The implications of that and what all that would entail if it's true. In no uncertain terms, Jesus is saying, I am your Messiah. I'm your Huckleberry. I'm the one you've been waiting for all these years, and you don't even recognize it. You have no idea. But I am it. And if you want to have the season, the time, the era, the epoch of my favor, you must have it on my terms. You must receive me as your Messiah. As I am. Not as you wish me to be or as you have thought in the past I should be or will be. see, he was saying, I am the Messiah, and you must receive me such as I am. Now, Jesus is, the last part is Jesus' rejection in verses 22 through 30. Now, interestingly, in verse 22, there's a question about how do we understand that? And, and it's possible, it could be, that we understand that word when, G, when it says this, in verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Well, they probably did earlier on. They, they certainly did. They were being cordial. And they were amazed by this preacher and what, how, how powerful his teaching was. Remember later on we would discover in other Gospels that the, he, he, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees, he taught with authority. They were probably, man, we have never heard anybody like this guy. That may be true. But now, at this point, you got a bunch of people going, 
Uh-huh. What? Messiah? Here? Now? In this place? The place where dreams come to die? You've got to be kidding me. You see, a better rendering may be they marveled at his words, but they weren't buying them. They weren't saying, oh, yes, my king, my Lord, falling. No. Not at all. They were saying, who does this guy think he is? We know who he is. The carpenter's boy. Hometown, homegrown. And you're telling, trying to get us to buy the line that this is the long-promised Messiah? Impossible. Outrageous. You see, do you expect us to believe this? Jesus, though, knew their thoughts. He knew they wanted, remember, a miracle. They said, hey, you did it in Capernaum. What's wrong with us? Are we chopped liver? Yeah. But, 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 but hey, what? come on. Put up. Okay, you, you've made the claim. Now let's see you do it. Let's have some magic tricks. Let's see some wonderful healings and something about all this other stuff we've heard down the road from. We're your hometown. Surely you're going to do something bigger and better, more fireworks for us. Nope. Jesus understood the problem. They didn't believe he was who he claimed to be. They just didn't believe it. They might have been impressed with him. They might have thought he was pretty awesome in terms of his eloquence and his speech. But they weren't buying anything he was selling. To make matters worse, Jesus knew they were also resolutely opposed to the idea of God showing grace to those nasty, filthy Gentiles. How could you, being one of us, how could you give any credence telling us stuff like that about filthy Gentiles being helped out by our great prophets? Well, we don't know what was going on with that. That didn't make any sense. But, but why in the world are you bringing them in here to us now? As if they've got further, gone further up the ladder than us. Jesus knew they were opposed and their hearts turned to stone when Jesus reminded them that because of their unbelief in Israel, the prophet Elijah was sent to a Gentile woman in Sidon and all the others in Israel, widows were ignored in that famine. And then Elisha, in his time, he healed only one, and it was a Gentile, a Syrian named Naaman. 
they got favor. The ones who thought they had it all, Jesus is saying, this is not the way to find my favor. Listen to Warren Wiersbe. He said, Sidon and Syria were Gentile lands and people. Jesus is saying God's salvation passed over Israel and went to the unclean Gentiles. Israel rejected their prophets, but the Gentiles received them and were saved. Now, at this point, they're about like a kettle blowing, about to blow its top. They are seething. Because Jesus, the, start thinking about this and wheels turning, the implications. You, you're saying we, the, these nasty dogs are closer to being where they should be spiritually than, than we are? Now they, they are absolutely ticked. In verses 28 through 29, they went from listening to Jesus to wanting to lynch Jesus. Went from listening to lynching. Without discussion or a trial, their impulse was to kill Jesus as a false prophet. And they marched him out of town as fast as they could to push him over a cliff. Now, if you were to go listen to, listen to uh, this, um, August Augustine said this, they love truth when it enlightens them, but they hate truth when it accuses them. Very wise statement. They hate truth, or excuse me, they love truth when it enlightens them, but they hate truth when it accuses them. That applies to many today, people who want gracious words, but who do not want to face the truth. You can't face the truth that the only way up is to go down, you can't be saved. If you can't face the truth that the only way you can be right with God is to give up all your own righteousness and all your own doings and all your own accomplishments and depend on the accomplishments of another, your elder brother Jesus. If you don't believe that, you can't be saved can't be okay with God and he certainly won't be okay with you but he sent a time a way he's opened the door through his son but we have to believe and receive him as he is as the one who can take us there and take away all our sin now it's very interesting on that uh, the brow of that mountain today uh, there's a, actually a, a stone, uh, I guess a point, kind of like a point reaching, jutting out over, over a mountain on over uh, Nazareth. Pretty high. It's about a, uh, you know, maybe a thousand foot drop or, or, or worse. But you don't need that far to kill somebody. <laughs> you know, 40, 50 feet will do quite, quite fine. So you don't need to get that. What I'm trying to suggest is, that, it's, a, it's a good stage place. We were there on our trip to the Holy Land with the Overleys, and, and it, was, it was very moving, looking out over the Jezreel Valley. 
but that wouldn't be where it actually was. And they don't actually claim it was. It probably could, would have been much closer in because the city had, has moved out at that point. But there are all kind of rocky places. You can, you can drop somebody, you know, off 20, 30 feet and, and uh, with all the boulders and rocks and do the, do the job quite well. Well, they were, that's exactly what they were intending to do. And yet, listen to verse, 60, uh, verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. Now, is that a kind of quasi-miracle, or did, did just in all the helter-skelter and all the confusion, uh, Jesus and the fewest disciples just jig this way and jig that, that way, and somebody said, hey, come over here, you know, got them behind a tent here or, or behind a rock here or something, or through a, in a stable. Who knows? Don't know how. But basically, he walked right out. Next thing you know, they're looking, well, where to go, where to go? Whether, it's, whether there was something supernatural there, if it was just kind of like, kind of like a meta, meta, uh, Jedi mind trick, you know, these aren't the droids you're looking for. You know, it, it could have been something like that, spiritual, or it could have just been. But here's what we know for sure: his time had not come. He had not come into this world to be flung to his death. Not this death. He did come into this world to die and rise again. But this was not the time or the place. His time was not yet to come. His time was not yet. It was not yet come. But for today, ours has Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your wonderful son, our Savior, for his amazing mercy to sinners like us, to coming and giving the favorable time, the era of the gospel. And Father, thank you that we are still in it. And may you draw in so many more that come and hang and cling to Jesus as we do today as we come to this table. May your presence be with us and your joy be ours because of him, your worthy son, in Jesus' name, amen. Stand for our hymn of preparation for the Lord's Supper. Behold the Lamb, verses 1 and 2.
Drink it.